0: The realization that Jesus is Jewish, and that changes everything, is sweeping through the church like wildfire. But some people have a problem with this. They say, we're dangerous, we're heretics, we're unorthodox, and they're coming at us with everything they've got. On today's Messiah Podcast, we have the author of Torah Club, First Fruits of Zion's Director of Education, Daniel Thomas Lancaster, and the founder and director of First Fruits of Zion, Boaz Michael. And we're going to talk about the dangers of First Fruits of Zion. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the Rabbi from the Galilee. You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. All right, well, welcome back to Messiah Podcast and welcome back, Boaz and Daniel, director and director and my my boss and his boss are here. So it's a a very special episode and I've got to be on my best behavior. But um, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, what a pleasure.
1: It is a pleasure to be here, Baruch Hashem, for this uh, moment in time.
0: So people are talking about First Fruits of Zion. And honestly, the response has been, I would say, overwhelmingly positive. As they rediscover their connection with Judaism and the Jewish people through the Jewish Messiah, they're understanding their Bible like never before. We get emails and, and stuff all the time. You know, I just had a guy from my church tell me that he's now reading the Bible again because it finally is making sense and it, and he enjoys it now. Cool. This is the sort of feedback we normally get. However, once in a while, um, as is the case with anyone who has got a disruptive innovation to present, we have some naysayers and some of our brothers and sisters in the church say we are dangerous. Are we dangerous, you guys? Is this true? You know, we do see Christianity differently Now, we have much in common
1: with greater Christianity through our shared devotion to Jesus, Yeshua as the Messiah. We have Christian brothers and sisters that we consider our co-laborers for our master's kingdom, but we see it differently. And primarily, we see Christianity through Jewish eyes. And as the tagline of this podcast says, that changes everything. Now, when we first started presenting a Jewish Jesus to traditional Christians they showed little interest. This is dating back 30 years. Yet as that little idea matured, as more people began to understand the value and the perspective and the context that that brought, hmm. it developed into something big, something important, something which restores Jesus to who he is, who he was. It's something, a perspective that's that's absolutely vital for Christians today. It's not just a cosmetic thing where we're changing Jesus to Yeshua, Comprehensively restoring Jesus into his Jewish context, that is a disruptive idea. Yeah. And many Christians are willing now to embrace that, but it is a challenge. And I think that that challenge brings some concern. So, because of that, we've worked incredibly hard to be careful, balanced, and to bring an in inspiring theology that informs Christians in a positive way about the foundations of their faith. So, in terms of answering your question, are we dangerous? I would say no, but are we challenging? Absolutely yes. Yeah. Yeah, I guess um, I would probably add that
2: we are a danger. We're dangerous to replacement theology. So if your whole paradigm is based on, your whole religious outlook is based on the idea that the church has replaced the Jewish people as God's people, canceled the Torah from Mount Sinai and and so on and so forth. If that's your perspective, you're coming from that that sort of old school traditional replacement theology worldview, then of course you're going to perceive us as dangerous because that's exactly what we're poking at. We are uh, leading people out of that paradigm and into something that is you know, frankly, more biblical, a much more biblical way to understand early Christianity and to understand the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of his first followers. So we would categorically reject the idea that we pose a danger to the church, quite the opposite. Instead, I think that we offer something really vital to the church. But regarding replacement theology, yeah, we're dangerous. Nice.
0: So um, let's get into some specifics. I'm sure people are now interested. What what are people actually saying? And uh, how would we respond to it? What are some of the specific complaints? So I think we should get into that. That'll be fun. One problem that people have is that we talk about the Torah a lot, and we seem to put it on a pedestal. And we talk about it more than the other books of the Bible. And when we go through scripture every year, it's the Torah that we're going through every year. We don't go through Isaiah every year. We go through the Torah every year. And so, you know, people get the idea that maybe we think that all scripture is inspired by God, but maybe we think the Torah is more inspired or like it's better. Because when we look at, even when we look at other scripture, we go back to the Torah to help us understand what it all means. So what would we say to that? Is the Torah on a higher level at the, as, as the rest of Scripture, or is all everything equally inspired, or is that not even the right question to ask?
2: I don't think it's the right question to ask. It's a question of chronology, actually. Like, you know, a later revelation doesn't supplant an earlier revelation of God. That's by inference of logic, that if God is truth and everything that he's saying is true, and he says this is true forever, then he can't later go back and say, yeah, that's not true anymore. So that's sort of a logical idea. But when you look at, okay, so what is the Torah? The Torah comes to us through Moses. It's the, uh, you know, it's, it's these, the five books of Moses, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the idea of the Torah is that this is God's revelation, his self-disclosure. He shows up on Mount Sinai in front of an entire nation that see him in the smoke and the fire and the lightning and the thunder and, and they, they all hear God's voice speaking to them, which elevates every single man, woman and child in an entire nation up to the level of a prophet that's hearing directly from God. Now, this is unusual. It's not just unusual. It's unprecedented, as in it, it's never happened before and it's never happened since that God just appears and says, we interrupt this reality to bring you this message from your creator, (laughs) you know? And, and uh, so that's kind of what's happening at Mount Sinai. So this is a watershed moment in human history. And so it's like, what comes through the Torah, what comes through that revelation at Mount Sinai then becomes the fundamental basis of the religious revelation through the prophets and such that's going to unfold. So the prophets never come along and they say, you know, I think Moses was wrong about X, Y, or Z. Instead, the prophets all assume that what happened at Mount Sinai, what came through Moses is the bedrock truth. And so their revelations are going to build upon that bedrock truth. And it's no different when we get to the new Testament and the teaching of Yeshua. So it's not that we're setting the Torah above any other scripture. It's just that we're saying, this is the stuff that all other scripture is built on. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: My colleague, Aaron Eby would uh, say that all of the Bible as we have it today is essentially can be considered the Torah. Torah means teaching. It's all of God's revelation. So I think there is a, an, equality there amongst all of the revelation that him has given us, but Daniel's correct in the sense of historical priority and foundation that the Torah represents. You know, in the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, it says that no other prophet has arisen like, like Moshe, like Moses. This is a very straightforward statement. So no other prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, none of them were like Moses. And none of them saw Hashem's will or revelation as clearly as Moses. Now, looking back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy eight fifteen, there's a prophetic promise that Moshe gives the people of Israel, the Jewish people, as a point of hope for the future, where he says that Hashem will raise up a prophet like me among your brothers, and to him you shall listen. And then we see multiple references throughout the New Testament where the Apostles and disciples are using this text as proof text as Yeshua being that prophet like unto Moses. So if he's a prophet like unto Moses, then he's carrying that message of the Torah forward to the Jewish people and ultimately through his disciples to all nations. So I think it's safe to say that that Yeshua and everyone who was listening to Yeshua's teachings, they knew and accepted that the Torah was foundational, and that Yeshua was that Torah teacher like Moshe. So, to the disciples, this was like a proof text to actually authenticating Yeshua as the Messiah, that he would be that that prophet like unto Moses, bringing the message of returning in repentance to the commandments of the Torah. You know, Judaism has been the caretakers of this Torah throughout history— I think we need to understand, appreciate uh, Judaism. We need to see the Torah as the primary context for what Yeshua was saying. It's the cultural context of the New Testament. It's the religious context of the message of the religion of Jesus and what he was passing to his disciples. Uh, It's the interpretive context in how we authenticate something to be true in a later revelation if it can be validated by God's earlier revelation as founded within the Torah. So Yeshua regarded Moshe as a prophet. His disciples regarded Yeshua as the prophet like unto Moshe. If we want to follow Yeshua, to know Yeshua better, I think we need to adopt his same worldview regarding the Torah and Moshe and the continued revelation And the validation of the Torah within the teachings of Jesus.
2: On the other hand, there's the opening of the book of, or the epistle to the Hebrews, it starts with this very provocative passage that says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, in various and sundry forms, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets and, uh, and, 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 and so forth. But then it says, In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Okay, so that puts Yeshua in a line of continuity with previous revelation, not contradicting previous revelation. I call it a provocative statement because what it does is it also elevates the teaching of our master, a teaching of Yeshua, and the teaching, by the way, that's transmitted, his teaching that's transmitted through all of his apostles, which we call the New Testament. It elevates those scriptures to the same level as the level of Torah. So it's absolutely wrong for someone to say, oh, first fruits of Zion, they put the Torah above the New Testament. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that there can't be a contradiction, that if there was a contradiction between the two, then we'd have a problem. But we're saying there is no contradiction. And so we spend our time proving that there's no contradiction. Even this argument that he makes in the book of Hebrews, when he says in chapter two, he says, if the Torah proved to be inalterable, uh, so that every infraction, every transgression of the Torah received its just punishment, Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, then how much more so should we heed the Son speaking to us from heaven so great a salvation? Which is to say, look, if the Torah is solid, and we all agree the Torah is solid— and that it doesn't change and it's not done away with, then how much more so should we be paying attention to the one who has spoken to us in these last days through whom God has spoken in these last days? So somehow we're able to misread that in the church into some sort of like, well, the Torah is alterable. It no longer has standing. And so now we should just read the New Testament, but that's completely to the opposite of effect of what the writer of Hebrews was trying to say.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. If that's true, then this is true. So that's that's got to be true, or or your or the whole argument falls apart. Exactly the credibility, like that whole argument. The logic of the argument will fall apart
2: if if the first thing isn't true, then the second thing isn't true. If the first thing is true, then how much more so the second thing is true. That's that's the logic.
1: You know, when we talk about bringing in a Jewish context, it's also understanding historical Jewish interpretative or linguistic structures on how things like this are
2: written. Yeah, that's a classic rabbinic argument uh, called called the Homer, which is from the light to the heavy. If this light thing is true, how much more so this weighty thing? So if this light thing that you would receive punishment uh, for uh, transgression of the Torah is true, how much more so if we transgress by ignoring the warning that God is giving us through his son in these last days? That's the gist of it.
0: Nice. All right, well— Hebrews has a lot to say about covenants, so that maybe, that's a, maybe this is a good time to lead into a, a second objection. And um, this one, I'm, I'm pretty sure that we are dead to rights guilty of this one, but maybe you can explain why that that's actually good and that we're correct. So people don't like that we say the Sinai covenant is still operative. We're, we're, we're still playing by Sinai rules. The Jewish people are still bound to the covenant, that they made with Hashem on Mount Sinai. So all those laws and all the rules in the Old Testament are just as much enforced now as they were in Old Testament times and in, and in Yeshua's time. Is this true? And if so, how come that's okay? Well, I mean, a lot of people have built whole uh, whole mountains and edifices of theology on the idea that the, the old covenant is gone. And so when we come in and say, oh, it's not. You know, as these edifices start to crumble, maybe we can help people have a little softer landing. You know, what's ironic about the question
2: is, you know, people come with us with these kind of accusations, and they're coming from a fundamentalist perspective. Somebody who has a, a biblical view of the plenary in- inspiration of, of the Word of God, and which can be just sort of like the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. That kind of um, <laughs> that you know that that kind of perspective. These are the people who are upset with us for saying the Torah is, is an eternal, it's still in force. Yeshua says, don't think I came to do away with the Torah. I didn't come to abolish the Torah, not the least stroke or the smallest letter of, of the Torah until heaven and earth pass away. And they haven't yet, by the way, not the smallest commandment from the Torah is going to pass away. I mean, that is the literal reading. So really what we are the ones who are taking the Bible literally as regards the Torah. The problem is that reading, that literal reading of the text, for example, when the Torah says, this is an eternal statute that shall be practiced throughout your generations forever and ever. You know, when it says things like this, people say, well, it doesn't mean that, you know, that that meant until Jesus came, right? So, you know, what happened here is that historically, Christians have rejected all of those passages in favor of an interpretive paradigm I mentioned earlier called replacement theology that just doesn't do justice to what the bible actually says you know the bible s- says it i believe it that settles it that really is the perspective that we're coming from it really is that simple and it doesn't say that the new covenant cancels god's covenant with israel in fact it does you know i should point out that We'll talk about you know we should talk about this really maybe Boaz you can talk about this but the new covenant is not the new testament that's another thing people have to get over they they, they pit the old covenant the old testament against the new testament as if it's like the one covenant replacing the other covenant but
1: that that's a complete misnomer yeah um, so Jeremiah thirty one really gives us a a different perspective on what the new covenant is. Jeremiah 31 says that the New Covenant is Hashem putting the Torah on our hearts that leads to obedience. And God promised uh, His people that as a result of this New Covenant that we would obey His, His Torah. Ezekiel 36 says a very similar thing, that God will put the Torah upon our hearts and that we will be careful to keep His laws, His Torah. So this is the New Covenant that Yeshua is talking about. These are the verses that he expects us to know about when we're referring to or have expectations of the New Covenant. So the New Covenant doesn't annul the Old Covenant, to even use those archaic and false terms. What it says is the New Covenant changes people's hearts to ensure that they will keep the Old Covenant.
2: Yeah, God's God's righteous standards that are spelled out in the Torah and
1: His Law and His Revelation. So it's actually it's it's not God's laws that change as a result of the new covenant. It's our hearts that change and have the ability to walk in faithfulness as Hashem has instructed us.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've written pretty extensively about this idea of the new covenant. Here's the real key piece of the new covenant. When you read it in its context in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, and even in, even in the, in the book of Hebrews and, and in Corinthians, when you understand them, we're talking about the covenant that God is going to use with his people in the coming future messianic age, in the age to come. It's the covenant of the age to come in which God is going to establish this theocratic monarchy again on earth, that was the Torah's ideal. And he's going to do it through this redemptive transformation of human beings. You know, like we see it, it, this is represented in the book of Revelation as the binding of the Satan, when, when Satan is bound in chains for that thousand years and such. So as disciples of Yeshua, who have identified the Messiah, we're grabbing onto these new covenant future realities that aren't here yet. They're not here yet. They're absolutely not because like for example in in the new covenant it it's like it says everyone will know the lord. No one will ever have to say to his neighbor, know ye the lord for they will all know him from the least to the greatest. We're not there yet. We're not in the new covenant era yet. My point is that By even grabbing onto the language of the new covenant and the hope and the faith in in the transformation of this new covenant, this spiritual transformation, it's what we call a prolepsis of the future. Like, we're taking a little bit of that future reality and applying it now. Like, give us this day, the bread of tomorrow, the master teaches us to pray. So... That's not the same then as, that's not the same as canceling the entire Old Testament or, or canceling the revelation from Mount Sinai. You know, it's a complete and total misunderstanding of both the Old Testament and the New Testament and, and also the meaning of the covenants to pit them against one another. That's, I think, the main thing to understand about the New Covenant is that the New Covenant is God's covenant for the coming messianic era.
1: You know, speaking about like being unsettled or having a disruptive idea, this is one of those big ideas, you know, for Christians in terms of wrapping their mind around the idea that the fullness of the new covenant has yet to be established. As disciples, we participate in that by clinging and, and attaching ourselves to the righteous Messiah. And it's like we have one foot in that world and one foot in this world. That's right. And the apostles talk about how we've received the
2: Holy Spirit as a down payment on this future reality. So a down payment, what does that imply? That implies that the full payment is yet to be received. And so, you know, we're still waiting for that full payment when God's Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh, it says, Uh, again, from the least to the greatest
1: on all flesh. The concept that you, you brought in at the end there of the prolepsis, it's such an important uh, concept in terms of of understanding our responsibilities that we do have until that day, which is to be faithful by bringing the realities of that future kingdom into the world today through our obedience, through our faithfulness, to our love uh, of, of Hashem, to our faithfulness of our Messiah. That concept of actively participating in the revelation of that world to come and the new covenant is a key part of being a disciple.
0: Man, there's a lot there to unpack. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said it. I don't know. Sounds like something he would say. If you were to just pick me up right now and drop me into heaven the way that I am, I would would just ruin it for everybody. It wouldn't be heaven anymore, you know? So (laughs) there is a realization that we do need to be transformed. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the legal basis for that transformation is this new covenant. So probably the most common objection. And we're not going to go into a lot of these specific objections. We're talking more broadly for the most part. But I'm sure someone is out there thinking didn't Jesus fulfill the law and somehow if you line up all the words right, you can technically make a situation where he he fulfilled the law wasn't abolished but he fulfilled it and I think it's because of what we know about Matthew 5:17 where Jesus said he fulfilled the Mosaic law we have a better interpretation of that verse that's more biblical and more like contextually accurate but maybe you want to unpack that for um, all of our listeners. Yeah, that
2: really is just word games to say well he didn't he didn't cancel the law he fulfilled it it's like what, what are you what are we, so he fulfilled it by canceling it? What Yeshua actually says in the context, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill, right? And so there's really two ways that fulfill is understood uh, in, in this context. I mean, two ways that you could understand the, uh, the concept of fulfilling the law and the prophets. And the one is the fulfillment of the prophetic expectations, Okay, that might work for the prophets, but how would that work for the Torah? So the second one is the fulfillment of the Torah. This turns out to be a phrase that appears frequently in rabbinic literature when a rabbi says, you know, he fulfilled the Torah or I'm going to fulfill, I'm fulfilling the Torah here. It refers to keeping the law and correctly interpreting the law so that it can be properly kept. So if you give a bad interpretation on the Torah, if you give a bad interpretation on on the commandments, uh, you failed to fulfill the intention. So if you have a mitzvah, a commandment, and you misunderstand it, and you do something totally different than what was commanded, well, you haven't fulfilled that commandment. So this is the actual context. This is rabbinic language, and, and that's what we have in the Sermon on the Mount, is you have Yeshua saying, okay, it says in the law of Moses, you shall not... You know, murder. But I tell you that if you hate your brother in your heart, that's like murder in the heart. And so, what he does is he says, What's the intention of the commandment? And he goes through all these different commandments with the same method. So, when he says, I've come to fulfill the law, it means I've come to teach you how to properly keep the Torah according to what God intended. And that is the straight and narrow path that's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's the straight and narrow path that leads to life, that leads to the kingdom of heaven, that he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And then You know, he doesn't tell us how to seek first the kingdom of heaven, because that's what Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is. That's seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto as well. And he's fulfilling the law by properly explaining the scriptures to us and God's intention in the scriptures so that we can stay on that straight and narrow.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you used murder as an example, because that's the one where it's most clear that we're keeping that law. He's not saying, well, murder's okay now as long as you don't hate anybody, you know, feel free. Yeah, we should probably keep that adultery one on the books too. Yeah, for sure. So all of this is leading to a new question, which is, well, if the Sinai Covenant is still in force and Jesus didn't abolish the Old Testament law, does this mean that... All the followers of Jesus should we be going through there verse by verse and picking out commandments and doing everything? How far do you take this thing? What are the extent of uh, like my obligations as someone who you know is not Jewish, just a follower of Jesus is, is this do we get the whole load, the whole weight of everything placed uh, on our shoulders as well?
1: This is actually one of the most common questions that we get. I mean, so we're teaching, the the validity of the torah the foundation of the torah we have a thing called the torah club you know we're educating christians about the value the benefit the understanding of the torah because we feel it's such a critical understudied text in christianity that really forms the foundation of christianity when properly understood so we get a lot of christians that ask this question i think also another motivator for that is i think Christians want to be obedient to God. They want to do what God says. They want to follow his word. So that's good that's a good motivator. And I think in the world that we live in, I think people are also looking for some substance, boundaries. They're looking for clarity. So I think when we're presenting the Torah automatically the trajectory could lead Christians to sit back and say, "Well, I have to be keeping The Torah in this way, in the same way as the Jewish people, and all of these types of things. So there's those questions are actually motivated by I think uh, a good heart of how do I be faithful to God? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it does raise complications because we have to understand the context, we have to understand the intention, and who the commandments are speaking to. You know, there is legislation in the Torah itself, in its in its broad scope of the nation that it's addressing. It there's commandments for priests, and there's commandments for a farmer, and there's commandments for women, and there's commandments for men. There's commandments if you live in the land, if you live outside of the land. There's commandments for Jews. There's commandments for non-Jews within the framework of the Torah. So we have to put our thinking cap on, and we have to be people of integrity, and we have to sit back and say, okay, which commandments of the Torah apply to me, and which commandments should I strive to be faithful towards? So you know, we have worked for years to attempt to articulate a biblical understanding of the centrality of the of the Jewish people, the foundation of the Torah, but at the same time putting forth these distinctions that the Torah itself makes. Because it's improper for a Gentile to wear a zitzit. There's a context there that Gentiles, for the most part, don't understand what they represent. And ultimately they misrepresent them. And I've heard in the past where some people would sit back and say, well, we're doing these things to provoke the Jews to jealousy. You know, I'm putting on a kippa, I'm growing a beard. I'm going to wear a tzitzit. I'm going to put a tallit on. I'm going to blow a shofar during our praise and worship service. I'm going to do all of these types of things because one, I'm commanded to, or two, because I'm provoking the Jewish people to jealousy. And ultimately they are 99.9% of the time misappropriated and misapplied and should not be done by Gentiles. Now, as I said, we're careful. So we have, I mean, our theological foundation at First Root of Zion is called distinction theology, where we attempt to make a distinction between the obligations of the Jewish people and disciples of the nations. The Jewish people have an ongoing obligation, covenantal obligation, to keep the mitzvot of the Torah. Where Gentiles don't have that same covenantal obligation, it's really critical that at least our constituency, that are embracing these ideas, understand these distinctions and embrace a distinction theology that allows them to properly implement in a balanced way the Torah into their lives. So in the broadest sense of the term, the Torah speaks to two different people groups, Hmm. the Jewish people and the nations. Now, again, it's broken down even further But the Torah is a covenant that God made with the Jewish people, and there's obligations because of that covenant that the Jewish people have to be responsible to Hashem. Yeah,
2: it's such a big question, and it's such an important question the foundation of distinction theology that Boaz is speaking of, that there is a difference between Jews and Gentiles, even after coming to faith. That, you know, when Paul says there is no difference between Jews and Gentiles, that's in regard to salvation. When he says there's no difference between male and female, that's in regard to salvation in the world to come through faith in Yeshua. When he says there's no difference between slave and free, that's in regard to salvation it's not in regard to the practical application of god's word and who god's word applies to as god is giving these different commandments to different people groups but there are commandments that are in the torah and boaz made reference to this of you know the commandments to the nations that are are broadly understood and you know this is the stuff that I think every Christian in every church intuitively understands that these things that, that they're obligated to these laws of the Torah that they uh, against idolatry, against murder, against incest, against uh, adultery. You know these broad moral statutes of the Torah, and I think that the church correctly believes that you know what we should be keeping these commandments. This is godliness. This is morality. This is what it is. So what the apostles did in Acts fifteen, where this really comes to a head, this whole question of do the Gentile disciples of Yeshua need to become Jewish and keep the Shabbat and keep kosher and be circumcised and all of the stuff that the Torah tells the Jewish people to do this this is the big argument in Acts 15 they say look that doesn't make sense we can't force these gentile people from the nations to become Jewish in order to qualify for the kingdom of heaven and the world to come because i mean that's not how we qualify. We qualify by faith. So, why should it be different for them? And okay, so this is the argument of the book of Galatians. This is the argument of Acts 15. This becomes a huge question in Romans. A lot of the New Testament is concerned with this very question. Oh, yeah. Uh, but in Acts 15, they said at least there are some broad strokes here that we need to lay out. If these people are going to be with us in our communities, and we're, we're going to be having fellowship with him. There's there's some broad strokes. And so they turned to the Torah and they looked at the commandments that apply to a category of people called the stranger in your midst, the stranger among you. In Hebrew, it's the gertoshav, the stranger that's dwelling among the gates of Israel. And they said, these commandments would be a good place to start. Basically, that's, that's how that goes. I, I might just point people to the book I wrote called Restoration, Returning the Torah of Moses to the Disciples
0: of Jesus. Good book.
1: You know, we receive criticism for our interpretation of Acts 15 in a variety of different ways. But I think one of the beautiful things kind of going back to the top of this podcast that Acts 15 does is it it is it connects the nations to the Jewish people and it brings them into that presence and it causes this place of learning and growth for the nations as they continue to mature in their faith.
0: Yeah, I agree. One thing but, that stood out to me today that hasn't necessarily in the past is that the the laws that the apostles decided to put on the Gentile converts, the Gentile followers of Yeshua, be, be, being based on the idea of the Gertrushav, or the stranger, the non-Jewish person who is in the land of Israel, you know, maybe part of the church's blind spot to that category is is the church's blind spot toward the land of Israel to begin with i mean if you don't think the land of Israel has any significance then why on earth would the apostles choose that category of the gentile living in the land of Israel as as hey here are the here are the commandments we want all the gentile followers of jesus to keep
2: yeah, that's spot on. That's spot on. And it's not just, it's the land of Israel and the people of Israel. So so both of them, the, the people of Israel are in the land of Israel. So if the non-Jews are in the land of Israel among the people of Israel... That gives you the context. So even out in the diaspora, as the apostles are moving out into out into the nations, Asia Minor and so forth, they're going to the synagogues and Jewish communities in those diaspora communities. And if you become a Yeshua follower, a disciple of Yeshua, then that Jewish community, that local Jewish community becomes your local community of faith where the God of Israel is worshipped. Because the only other option is Zeus down the street, you know, at the Temple of Zeus or whatever. Right. So that becomes your locus of faith and connection and especially among the Jewish believers that are in that community and the apostles themselves. And so, Yeah, it makes sense to say, okay, these are the strangers among us. Now, of course, in our day and age, that's become so inverted and flipped over because of vast Gentile majority of the church, you know, and then you have a few token Jewish converts here and there, right? Those become the strangers among the church. And so it's very difficult to see the first century New Testament perspective from where we are 2000 years later. But you're absolutely right. That's a great insight.
0: Yeah, the land, the people and the scriptures of Israel. I mean, and if we could all just get that down we would finally be able to understand the Bible better. And if you want to do that, by the way, you can learn about the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel in a lot more detail in First Fruits of Zion's 10-week video lesson series, Hayasod. It answers all of these questions with Bible references and just sort of puts all the pieces together in a logical order. And it's just a great starting point for anyone who's wondering where all of this is coming from and and why we're talking about the Jewishness of Jesus and how it changes everything. It goes into Old Testament, teachings of Jesus, teachings of Paul, and just paints a very broad picture, makes the whole Bible make sense as one big story. It was filmed in Israel. I mean, you can see all of the biblical locations. It's very cool. So I recommend it to anyone who uh, still has questions after this podcast. So speaking of Paul, what about Romans 7, 6. And this is a verse that just gets sort of pulled out with tweezers, like, like a lot of verses in Romans to, to demonstrate that, you know, we don't follow this dead law. We have a living spirit, which is so much better. Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I think anyone would admit that if you only had that verse in the New Testament, it would seem to say that's, that something has come that's different and the, that the law is gone and we have something else to replace it. However, I'm sure that you have a better explanation.
2: So when when we interpret Paul in this way, we veer really close to a sort of Gnostic worldview where the Old Testament gave this dead ineffectual law of Moses and then, you know, the New Testament comes and, and gives this new law that replaces the old in the, the newness of the spirit, or however he put it. If that's how we're understanding that, that's that's very suspiciously close to what's called the Marcionite heresy, which was a second century heresy, where it was a Gnostic heresy that said, you know, the God of the Jews was this uh, lower demiurge urge. And, and the higher God, he sent Jesus to redeem us from Jewish law and from the lower God of the Jews and so forth. We don't need to get into all of that, but I can see where misinterpreting a a, a passage like that could bring you to that point. Romans seven is difficult. And here's why it's difficult because Paul plays with this idea of two aspects of the Torah. He talks about, he calls the law of sin and death. And then he just referred to this as the law. Yeah. And he bases the law of sin of sin and death upon the law, the law of God, which is holy, righteous and good. And he says that in the same, in the same passage, holy, righteous and good. But then the law of sin and death is like the other side of the coin of this same law. So what is the law of sin and death? Well, he spells that out. You don't have to guess about it. It's not the Torah. The law of sin and death is the law that says the wages of sin are death. So the wages of sin are death. The apostles are understanding that to mean that breaking the Torah, breaking God's commandments as they apply to us individually, as individuals, that's called sin. And sin incurs the punishment of death. And death means death, both the first death and the second death from the perspective of the apostles. that's, That's physical mortal death, but also a forfeiture of the life of the world to come. So, when Paul speaks about this, he speaks about this, this newness. He's talking about the redemption. He's talking about faith in Yeshua for the righteousness and of the, the forgiveness of sins that comes in his name and the righteousness that is attained through the favor that God has bestowed upon his son, Yeshua, when we cling to him in the allegiance of faith. But, okay, if you keep reading in Romans seven, which is usually what you have to do when you're reading Paul, you can't just stop. You can't just uh, stick in your thumb and pull out a plum. You actually have to like keep reading and get the broader context. Usually when he finishes one of these deep theological discussions, you know what he's going to do? He's going to throw out like 20 or 30 commandments of the Torah and, and, uh, you know, said this, 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 and anyone, anyone who breaks these commandments, isn't part of the kingdom of heaven. So throw them, you know, so, and, and they'll have no share in the world to come. Boom. <laughs> Something like that.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. People pull these verses out of these deep theological, sometimes very technically Jewish arguments, and they don't have the tools to kind of navigate through that text. And they do this to prove that the Torah is bad or that the law itself is abolished. But if you just keep reading, as Daniel said, you can find that Paul very clearly, unambiguously, he begins to point people, not to some made up, Law, but rather back to the foundation, the Torah, mitzvot as standards of righteousness for uh, the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He's he's pointing to this, and he's saying these are the what it means to to be a faithful disciple. So the Gentiles that he's writing to, they need the direction i mean these are people that were steeped in idolatry or paganism or these different types of things or weird sexual behaviors and he's pointing them back to the torah to say this is proper sexuality this is proper worship of god of a deity of the one true god and he he does this just about in every epistle that he writes
0: yeah now, to follow these things, when I'm sure our, our, our more astute listeners uh, are, have jumped ahead and they are thinking, well, okay, it sounds like what they're saying is that all the stuff we read about in the New Testament is just more, more Judaism. It's not a reboot, a restart, erase, uh, uh, try again. And the, the primary difference from the other expressions of Judaism at the time was that they believed Jesus was the Messiah. Do you think that that's a fair characterization of what what we think of, I guess, what most people would call the early church?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I think that's correct. This isn't just like the dangers of First Rits of Zion. This This is not even really a controversial idea anymore. This is more and more accepted among academics and historians and even among some evangelicals, actually. You know, this is just what a literate reading of the text indicates That early Christianity wasn't Christianity as we know it. The earliest form of Christianity was actually, was not a new religion. It was a sect within the greater Jewish people, a specific religious movement within Judaism. Just like you have, you might have many sects within the church today, many denominations within within the broader church, if that makes sense by way of analogy.
1: Yeah. This makes sense on this theological concept that I think every Christian would embrace and understand is that the idea that God, it goes against his nature or it's impossible for God to change. In Malachi, it says that the, he says, for I am Hashem, I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So Hashem made a covenant uh, with our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he's Covenantly obligated to fulfill. He's not a god that changes his mind, changes his character, changes his the covenants that he makes. In fact, I, I love this text out of Romans 15 that affirms this idea of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people based upon the covenants that he made with our, our the patriarchs. Uh, Romans 15:8 says, "For I tell you, Messiah became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given." to the patriarchs. So the idea that God would start one religion, Judaism, and then later decide that it wasn't working out, salvation was too hard to achieve, he was lonely, um, everybody <laughs> was a sinner, all these types of things. And so he needed to start another a religion, a new one. This doesn't sit well with the idea that, that God does not change. He has a plan and he follows it through. And I think every one of us should be hoping that God proves himself faithful to uh, the people of Israel, to the Jewish people, or our entire uh, Bible is untrustworthy.
0: Yeah. And I think that people get alarmed because when people hear this, and it does not necessarily resonate with everything that they learned in church or in, you know, in, in Christian school, or in my case, in seminary, you know, people can Think that we're saying that the church is wrong and the church is in error and maybe like the church has been lying to us because how could they not know this they must know this and so they're hiding the truth and um i think it's primarily an emotional response where someone feels like they've been misled by uh, someone they trusted and by an authority figure and that they're just not sure what to do with that feeling so what 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 are we saying it brings me great joy to see the diversity of the
1: churches that our resources are utilized in. Our Torah clubs are in all f- different forms of denominations and people are beginning to learn and to understand their faith from a Jewish perspective. You know, we've made it a part of our culture not to bring condemnation to the church. Now, as I said earlier, we do challenge ideas and we do have a perspective that can feel at times dismantling to long-established theological traditions and perspectives. But that's because we're on a mission to restore a Jewish foundation to the biblical text. But it's a conspiracy theory that some people fall into that begin to embrace these ideas that the church is suppressing truth or the church is lying to people. And honestly, we discourage people from going down that road. It's it's a tempting idea. Everybody always needs... Uh, uh, a villain or a bad guy yeah exactly it's the the negative other the negative other gives us the ability to justify who we are and that we're more righteous or we're more holy or we understand the bible better so you know we we stand against the development of a negative other and i think our our resources will prove that in the sense that you know you don't see us posturing ourselves against particular dogma we present uh, the Bible, from a Jewish perspective, and at times that brings challenge, but um, it 's all with the intention of bringing people into a proper relationship with the land, the people, and the scriptures of Israel. The particular
2: dogma that we do position ourselves against very squarely is of course replacement theology within the Church, which then tends to be part and parcel of so many different ways that the Church understands itself in juxtaposed against the people of Israel. But if you look at how we got here, I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing to me is to read this from a historical perspective and, and to see how we got here. Because if you look at the Church Fathers, you read the Church Fathers and so forth, you can you can see this almost like playing out in real time, you know, starting with uh, uh, it, uh, Justin Martyr and Ignatius and... And 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 rolling forward, and you, you see that by the time you get to Nicaea, the wheels have really come off. You know, so you get to Nicaea, and Constantine uh, says, "Let us have nothing to do with the detestable Jewish rabble." You know, in our interpretations, and so uh, let's figure out as we fix our calendar, make sure it's not with any reference to the Jewish calendar, is what he's saying. Uh, and in, in every other uh, decision that they're making, there, they're they're not they're not looking at it through through a Jewish framing, even though, you know, like we've been saying, this was a Jewish religion. Jesus is a Jew. He's the King of the Jews. All the apostles are Jewish. All the first disciples are Jewish. But by the time you get to Nicaea, not so much, (laughs) not so much anymore. And then, but even then, even then there's this tension, you've got the bishops in Asia minor who are holding on to a historical memory of, Hey, that's not the way John did it when he was here. That's that's not the way that the apostles that we that the tradition that they handed yeah. on to us was that we kept Pesach and and so you have that that quarter deciman debate this another whole another. whole nother topic of discussion but so so there is kind of like these smoking gun moments throughout the development of church history where you can see what like what boaz was saying where it just drifts further and further from the original foundation and i'm saying the original foundation is of course the torah but the new testament itself is the foundation the original foundation of of this religious movement Uh, and so okay so don't throw out the baby with the bath water. Okay. But let's get the, let's get some clean yeah. bathwater in here. Huh? How about that? Uh, let's try that. And so that's, I think that's, that might be what people are reacting to when, when they, they say that, you know, you know we're so critical of the church. Um, not really. We're, we're pretty, we're critical of replacement theology and the implications of replacement
0: theology. So, Here's another. Here's another idea that I think people struggle with, because in evangelical Christianity, it's all about the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, and like that is that is the evangelion of evangelical um, theology. So I think if people don't read carefully and they come to our materials and we start talking about the gospel of Jesus, you know. When we, when we talk about the gospel, we say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whereas the gospel message a lot of people are familiar with is, believe in Jesus and you can go to heaven when you die, which astute listeners will notice that those, t- those two sentences don't have a single word in common. So um, how would you maybe allay this fear or respond to this criticism?
2: Oh, well, I would say, you know, reading, reading the gospels is the best way to do that. You, you read, you read the gospels and the gospel message is, is explicit in the gospel. What a surprise. <laughs> but the gospel message explicitly that, that Yeshua is teaching and that he tells his disciples to go out and teach is, is literally repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you're right. It doesn't sound a lot like the evangelical reformulation, but you do need to unpack that repent means to turn around and quit sinning, stop sinning, turn around uh, and, and, and pursue righteousness. That's what repent means. But the imperative repent is because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which means the day of the Lord, the messianic era, the final judgment is at hand. How do we know? Because the Messiah is here. And if the Messiah is here, the day of the Lord has to be right behind it. So, So you have this invitation, this opportunity, this narrow window of time now before the day of the Lord to repent and turn to God. And you better heed that message. And the the way that you do that is through clinging to this teacher who's bringing this message, who's bringing this message of repentance to cling to his words, to cleave to his words, and, and and, and, and to, uh, to cleave to him as a disciple in faith for, uh, for the forgiveness of sins through his name, uh, it coupled with repentance, uh, and, and that is how we anticipate entering into the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. So ultimately, it is the same gospel. It's just, we're saying it in the Jewish way that Jesus said it. And
1: so it sounds strange to evangelical ears. Okay. So we do we do understand and see this uh, broader definition that believing in Yeshua, in other words, um, accepting Him as King uh, and becoming part of His kingdom, that this does lead to an eternal life. I mean, the text out of uh, Matthew twenty, yeah, Matthew twenty four that says, you know, that when this gospel uh, reaches, you know, to all the ends of the earth, then the end will come. That's not what it says. It says when this gospel of the kingdom you know, is preached to all nations, then the end will come. So we really emphasize that kingdom component, which brings us right into like a a Jewish gospel framework of King Messiah, the restoration of the kingdom, Messiah ruling and reigning from from Israel. So the idea of believing in Jesus uh, to go to heaven does, it does capture some component of this, but it's what's lacking in all of this is that Jewish, context, that Jewish framework, in specific in regards to the gospel of the the message, the gospel of the kingdom message, the action component, the expectations that God has uh, from all of us that hear those words and that call of repentance to stop, turn, and begin to walk in obedience. So it's not just about um, having a correct theology or joining a church or being on the the roles of a local denomination, or just simply saying a prayer, it's about repentance. It's about, it's about ceasing the act of sin, striving to know God, um, constantly submitting our will to the will of Hashem, and living according to the commandments as they apply to us within the framework of being guided by the Holy Spirit.
2: Right, right, and now you know the the evangelical in me because I was raised evangelical will immediately start. Well, you know, Boaz, that's starting to sound a lot like like works, isn't it? You know, it starts to sound a lot like works. But I, I would just answer that and say, no, that's not that's not what we're saying. We're not saying that you need to earn your salvation. Instead, salvation is a gift of it's a gift from, from God through faith in Yeshua through. You know, Clinging to him, cleaving to him, uh, confessing sin, but walking in repentance is a component of what that means to cleave to Yeshua and to to cling to him and to be his disciple. It's about repentance, like like you're saying. And then an, another another thing that another correction we could bring to the to the more conventional American gospel uh, presentation of the gospel is that when we're talking about eternal life, we're not talking about going to heaven when you die. We're, we're, we're talking about the resurrection from the dead. We're talking about the actual physical resurrection from the dead and, and life in the world to come. It's a little bit different than being a disembodied spirit, you know, which is a, a, a real hope, a solid hope that was given to us when our master walked out of the tomb himself in the flesh, not in the spirit, not as a ghost, but as a living, uh, a, a living human being that's going to live forever. And that's that's the hope of eternal life that is the gospel. That's the good news part of the good news.
0: Well, I like your pun there, Dan, the solid hope of the resurrection, not a disembodied spirit. So uh, finally, and I think this last objection, it's definitely cloaked in theological terms because everything's theology, ecclesiology is theology. So, um, but I think where the place that it comes from is probably in some cases people get a little bit Unnerved by the fact that the the, we're, our, the our efforts for the kingdom are are bearing fruit and are successful, whereas many local churches are struggling. So I think the the and the objection I'm talking about is that what we're doing is sort of undermining the local church, that we're disrupting local churches, that we've we're introducing some like a, a an alternative or something that's competitive, stealing sheep I think is the term. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, you're right. That is the term. So, what what do we say to that?
1: Well, I don't think that the church as it exists today has any reason to fear the work of First Roots of Zion. We are we're so small, um, but we are making a very meaningful impact into people's lives. And I think when local churches are affected by that by that impact uh, or the challenge that we represent, I think it it does bring some bring some concern. So. You know, obviously, you know, Daniel and Jacob, our hope is that the church as an institution or a collection of institutions would uh, reject uh, a theological foundation that I think is systemic of, I'll say, uh, replacement theology. And at times that even feels like it's a bit anti Semitic and embrace a more biblical, uh, Israel centric worldview. But that's a challenge. And, you know, for the past 30 years, we've been working to encourage the church along these lines, but they tend to be resilient to change. Um, as, as I said at the beginning that, you know, religious structure, it, they, people want the, the theological boat not to be rocked. Yeah. But, you know, millions of God's people uh, around the world, uh, individuals, they're very open to understanding the Bible from its, its proper historical perspective even if that means changing or challenging some of their own views that they've that they've been uh, uh that they've uh kind of had passed down or adopted as they begin to kind of read and navigate the bible for themselves um so does this mean that we're competing with the local church i would say that that is that is certainly not our goal our resources are in a tremendous amount of churches and used as curriculum in churches And that would be the ideal um, for us. We understand the need for an institutionalized church to exist for a place of gathering for God's people. And we want to encourage and strengthen that as much as possible. Um, But if people are leaving uh, the local church, um, it's because their needs aren't being met there. Um, And that's, you know, you can read statistics and reasons and the social world that we live in, the culture that we live in people aren't leaving the church because they're beginning to embrace a Jewish foundation. (laughs) That's not why they're leaving the church. You know, I think we feel uh, such a burden for our constituents and for wandering disciples that we're willing to present our Torah Club, uh, which is our small group Bible study platform, as supplemental. It's a para-church program, so to speak. Um, And for some people— It might be an alternative uh, to participating in a local church, but that's not necessarily our intention. It's uh, one of the reasons why uh, Daniel and I felt uh, several years ago to turn Torah Club into a small group Bible study, because we realized there are a tremendous amount of Christians that are just simply isolated. They're alone, and we wanted to create a platform to bring people together. So. Are we are we doing something that's intentionally disruptive? Abs- absolutely, fundamentally, no. We would consider being underhanded, undermining local inst- uh, church institutions as something that that is a problem. It's bringing uh, strife, not not peace, and and that's not our intention. But the theology that we're putting forward is: Do these ideas uh, challenge uh, power structures? historic interpretations that are rooted in, in uh, replacement theology? Absolutely, absolutely yes, and, and frankly, there's no way around that. Every innovation is disruptive. Every theological idea that the Spirit begins to be uh, push forward because of the era of time that we live in is uh, disruptive to former ideas. So if we can't work within the local church or traditional structures— we you know we will work around them in the sense of of equipping disciples with resources that continue to to nurture an understanding of god the messiah community into their lives so it's a, a value of ours to support and create communities because we want to see people joining together studying the word of god and being accountable to one another as brothers and
0: sisters and striving to know God. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thanks so much, Daniel and Boaz, for for giving up so much of your time to answer these objections. Um, whether people out there have heard of the, these objections or not, at least they'll know what people are saying and um, and what we're saying back.
2: Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for your time, Jacob. Uh, we'll do it again sometime.
0: We will. This wasn't all the objections, so uh, we will do this again sometime. Part two uh, coming soon. Well, thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at FFOZ.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. Until then, I'm Jacob Franzak, Shalom. Let the waters cover the sea